I just wanted to say that I'm uh, extremely thankful and I was actually moved by the number of responses in light of last Sunday. Uh, we talked about the issue of homosexuality in the church. Um, it's, uh, I didn't realize that it was going to hit such a chord with you guys, you know, um, but, um, but apparently it did. And uh, I just wanted to ask you guys to continue to pray for our church as we figure out Ways to continue to connect and reach out to everyone in this city. Everyone in this city. Um, Today, we are starting a brand new sermon series. And we're going to call it Race Matters. We're going to talk about race. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about race. At which point, right about now, all the white folks and Asians are slumping down in their chairs going, I don't want to be here today. And... uh, And maybe, maybe that's a good thing. What's that, Michael? And maybe that's a good thing today because um, we need to have a tough conversation about this. Agree? Agree? We need to talk about it? Okay. Now, just to let you know um, where the sort of the trajectory of the sermon series is going, as always, I want to make sure that I ground everything in Scripture for those of you that may be coming to our church for the first time or have been coming recently, and maybe you think that some of the stuff that we do is because we're a social justice-minded church or very, I want you to know that everything we do in this church is grounded in Scripture. I want you to know why we're doing what we're doing for the next few Sundays, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 on. I'm going to put the scripture passages up there. There are four words, real quick, four key words that I want you to kind of catch on, okay? Four key words in the next five minutes or so that's going to be a foundation framework, okay? And from Ephesians chapter 2, the key word here is humanity, humanity, okay? Humanity. Uh, I want to read this for you. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose, that is Christ, was to create in himself one new man. There's the key word. Humanity, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul literally says in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 2 that the work of Christ on the cross, check this out, was not to save you from, from hell so that you can go to heaven. And we talk about that a lot in our church, so it, it should sound, you know, very familiar to you. But the incredible thing that Paul talks about in his argument from Ephesians 1 and 2 is that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has done an amazing thing of reconciling us to God. Reconciling us to God so that we could have peace with God, so that we can be welcomed into his family, to know him, to love him, and have a relationship with him. But Paul literally says the very same time that God did that, you know what else he did? He said he reconciled you to each other. He says he reconciled you to each other. So the reconciliation that is at the heart of the gospel is always twofold, you to God and you to each other. 
And he says in Ephesians 2, the purpose of that, now check this out, because it gives us the mission of our church and every church for that matter. He said the purpose of that was to create one new humanity. Now, even if you're motivated sort of by gender neutral language, the correct, the correct uh, interpretation of that, the Greek is kainon anthropon, which literally translated new humanity. And you know what that means? That means that the purpose is to, for, for God to create a new Social order. Let me just throw out a bunch of words. A new community, a new human race, a new society, a new, and the, and, the, and the words could continue. The purpose was to create this unique corporate thing, a society, a city, a humanity uh, uh, that, that is radically different from the rest. Matter of fact, historically, we know that the Christians in the early church were so radically distinct and different that they were derisively called the third race. They literally had to come up with a description for them. They said, they're not that race. They're not that race. They're a, diff- a third race. A new, new human species, literally. And that's what they were called. Because they lived out this life that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. Second passage, second word. First word is humanity. Second word then is ethnic. Ethnic from the Greek word ethnos. Where do we see that? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The apostle Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy, there's the word, holy ethnos, nation, a people belonging to God. If you know Old Testament history, you know that Paul is saying something that is filled with Old Testament implications. He's literally saying, Hey, remember how the nation of Israel Their mission was to be a different ethnic group, not racially, but different ethnic in a sense that they were to embody a whole different way of doing life, a whole different culture. The mission of Israel, Peter says, do you remember how God called them out so that by the way that they did life together, by the way that they lived amongst uh, amongst themselves, that they would be a light unto the other nations in such a way that the other nations ought to look at the nation of Israel and go, now that's how a society ought to be, to love God and to love each other. Now that's how a group of community people ought to be. Now that's how a nation of people ought to interact with each other and interact with the world. And Apostle Peter here is saying an amazing thing. He says, verse 10 going on, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's literally saying, remember how the nation of Israel was the new ethnos? Well, you, church, made up of various race, ethnicity, and culture, you today are the new ethnos. Now, why is that important? Because the church in America especially... It's far from being, far from looking like a, a new ethnos, an ethnic culture. What is an ethnos? What is an ethnos? Ethnos literally is describing the way you do life, it's culture, the way you behave, customs, values, priorities. It doesn't just describe a group of people who are just sort of there with one or two commonalities, but it's a way, it's a group of people that share everything in common, the way they view life. The way they view family, the way they view relationships, the way they play, the way they go about working, how they think about God, how they think about relationships, how they think about everything in life. It's a group of people who share this unique identity, a distinct identity as people. 
And, and Paul, Apostle Peter is literally resonating with Paul and saying, that's what the church is. <laughs> you are to be this ethnos, this new humanity that is so radically distinct and different that you literally are a countercultural force. And that everything you do together, everything, Everything that you do together, not just one or two, but in everything you do together, everything that makes up your entire worldview of your life, you ought to be so attracted to the rest of the world, the rest of the world will look at you and go, that's how a new society, that's how society ought to find, that's how a city ought to be. Okay, third word is the word generation. Participation this morning, please say the word generation with me. Ready? Generation. Where does, where does that come? In Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. With many words, he, that is Apostle Peter, this is his first sermon after the Pentecost, warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added. Please take note, please take note, for those of us that are very familiar with the book of Acts, notice that Peter does not say, save yourselves from, this is maybe perhaps small, misguided theology when it comes to Christianity. Peter doesn't say, save yourselves from hell so that you can be saved and go to heaven. He defines salvation as salvation from this generation. Why? What is a generation? Today's Father's Day. Love the fact that there are multiple generations that are represented here. Sociologists today would say those in their 55 and older are what they call the builder generation. And then you've got the boomers from 55 to about 40. And then you got the Gen X. And then you got the Gen Y. And then you got the millennials. And then now you have, I don't know what we call those of you that are like 18, 19. You're, you're something, but I don't know exactly what you are. But anyway, all of these generations are not just age groups. You know what they describe? They describe culture. Way of being, lifestyle, worldview, how they approach things. And what Peter is literally saying is salvation is about turning away from this generation, that is, this way of being, this mentality, the values and worldviews of the current systems, culture, generation you live in, and committing yourself. Committing yourself in a radical way to a completely new way of being. Completely new generation. Completely new ethnic. Completely new humanity. Now, what the heck would the church in America look like if they said, you know what, that's the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not I am saved by grace, forgiven of my sins. I want to be a good moral person. And then when Christ comes or I die, I get to go to heaven. But you have been called in to be a part of this radical different humanity, radically different ethnic, radically different generation of people. One more word. It's the word city. And we use this a lot in our church. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. And I don't need to go into this a lot because we articulate this every Sunday. Why does Jesus say that? 
building on all of these things, Jesus is saying the mission of the church is to be this radically different alternate city. A city within a city that the rest of the city would be able to look at this unique city and go, that's how a city ought to function. Do you see that? They have a a radically different perspective towards money. See, the city out there idolizes money. Money equates power. Money is used to manipulate. Money used to get things what I want. But in this city, in this humanity, in this new generation of people, they actually give it away. They actually radical with their money. It's unbelievable. And they don't use money to hoard it so that they can gain power. They give it away. And their, their way of gaining power is by relinquishing power. What about sexuality? Wow, do you, this city, the city out there, people use their sexuality, again, to fulfill unmet needs, unwanted needs, their longings. There isn't a high regard for sexuality. You sleep with whoever you want to. But in this city, it's not just protected, but it's used in a radical different way. What about race? Well, in the city of Chicago, people actually live physically separated from each other. city of Chicago, there's actually a road that historically has sort of separated this group from this group. In the city of Chicago, We still hear of incidents where a 13-year-old kid rides his bicycle and accidentally ventures into a certain neighborhood made up of certain ethnic groups and he's beat up. The city of Chicago is looking around and saying, is there an alternate city around here? Is there a group of people that could actually model and show the rest of the city of Chicago what this city ought to look like when it comes to the issue of race and ethnicity and culture? Is there actually a city within the city of Chicago where those dividing walls have been broken down? Is there a city within the city of Chicago where people actually are not afraid to talk about the issue of race because they're afraid that they might offend, but secure in their love of Christ and secure in their love for each other, they actually engage in good, honest, frank conversation? Is there a city within the city of Chicago where people don't ultimately find their identity and their security and their race, their ethnicity and their culture to make themselves feel better and superior to other race, other ethnicity, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that pride in that has been radically broken down. And they actually not just value, but lift up people of other ethnicity, culture, and race. Can I just put it this way? You don't just possess the gospel message. You are the gospel message. The question is, what is the gospel message according to you? What is the gospel message according to We're going to be talking about the issue of race. 
In a moment, I'm going to invite the panel, a group of men and women that uh, have been invited to be a part of this panel. But before they do, I wanted to go ahead and kind of lay a groundwork, framework, if you will, for where we're going to be going. Whether you like it or not, the issue of race has taken center stage in this country because of the presidential primaries. For anybody that thought that the issue of race is a long-gone thing in the past, it's been a reality check, a harsh reality check for our country. You know, I've actually heard commentators use the word post-racial. The United States is a post-racial you know, and Michael over there has a big smile on his face, and Nicole over here is shaking her head. Here's the interesting thing, you guys. Here's the interesting thing that I've observed about our culture today in light of this. We're confusing colorblindness with equality. We're confusing color blindness equality. Let me just give you a small example that some of us people of color experience. In light of what's been going on with Barack Obama and presidential can- you know, candidates, so on and so forth, you know, I've had folks come up to me and say, you know, that Barack Obama, I, I don't see him as a black person. I-, I just see him as Barack Obama. And I've had that a lot of times in my life as well. You know, Peter, I don't see you as, I don't see you as Peter, the Asian, Korean, American guy that came to the States, blah, blah, blah. I see you as Peter. And one time, one time, I was kind of at a place where I wasn't feeling very gracious and generous, you know? So I stopped and I said to that person, can I just ask you a question? I said, did you ever take notice of the fact that I could never say that about you? I can't say that about a white person. You know, I don't think of you as Greg the whitey, or white person, I'm sorry, the white guy. I'm sorry. There's going to be a lot of anger and resentment that's going to come out. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a moment. Coming to the country when I was 10 years old, and I'm going to share this, I experienced racism actually from everybody, which is another problem we have. But I said to that person, do you realize that you don't, you don't ever have to ever Go through that experience of somebody coming to you and saying, you know, I don't think of you as a white person. I just think of you as you. Because your definition of what's normal is, well, it's white. That's what, and everything else that's non-white is different. So, Peter, you're different. You're a different Korean guy. What's been interesting with the, and I'm not going to get political, because I could already see kind of the, the angst that's kind of, you know, emanating in the room. What's been interesting is that there are a lot of folks who say that it's progress, that we actually don't have to talk about race. There are a lot of commentators who said, think how far we've come. We don't have to make an issue out of race. We would, we shouldn't, and we don't really have to talk about it. And it's very, very discouraging to me to hear those commentaries because not wanting to talk about it or not having to talk about it is not progress. Furthermore, what I've noticed is a lot of Barack Obama supporters, really wary and nervous for people and their candidate, have kind of said, let's not talk about it. Because if we talk about it, he may not get elected. So it's been interesting to me on the sidelines going, they're actually doing more harm than good by saying, 
Let's not talk about it. You don't have to be very in tune with what's going on in our society and culture to know, you guys, that race is still an issue. The Gina 6 incident just months back. The Duke lacrosse team and the national headlines that that received. The, the, the horrific atrocity that was in his Hurricane Katrina. The debate and a ton of emotion still over affirmative action based on race. I mean, we do not live in a country, I'm sorry for those of you that wanted to believe it, we don't live in a country where race is no longer an issue. We live in a country where race is very much an issue. And by the way, this isn't just a black and white issue. Hello? Hello, Asians? Can you say amen? (laughs) All my Asian brothers and sisters are feeling real nervous right now. One of the things that really doesn't go reported actually is a lot of crime and injustice and hatred that's committed between people of color. A lot of you may not know that a lot of Asian Americans have a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds at the hands of the African-American community. How many of you guys are familiar with an article that was written by a guy named Kenneth Ang? It was online. Yep. A Chinese-American brother wrote an article called Why I Hate Blacks. And it was his vent, essentially. Some of it, angst over what he perceived as injustice committed within a lot of our inner cities. But a lot of it also was misinformed, misguided, pure ignorance and not helpful at all. Uh, Latinos, Hispanic brothers and sisters, it's been real interesting to me to see the Hispanic community in this country kind of try and deal with what do we do about a Barack Obama? Because it's bringing out a lot of latent racism that's still apparent and evident in South America towards people of color. And in case you think this is just a United States issue, Give me two more minutes before I bring the panel up here. Bolivia. Bolivia. Elected their first indigenous president. The indigenous people in Bolivia weren't even allowed to vote until 1952. And recently, they made headlines because about 50 indigenous mayors and town councils and community leaders were, 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 were exposed to absolute humiliation by those in power. Because of their unwillingness to relinquish power. And by the way, Bolivia is basically divided between Western Highlands, home to the poor indigenous majority, and the wealthier Eastern and Southeastern provinces, which account for most of the country's wealth, if you will. But the population East tends to be of European and mixed race descent. So you've got racism that's tearing this country apart between the indigenous folks, have-nots, and those of the European mixed rates and the haves. Brazil, did you guys know that Brazil has the second largest black population after Nigeria in the world? And racial injustice and animosity between blacks and whites in Brazil is sort of coming to a halt. Some, some leaders in Brazil say it may take 50 to 100 years for any bridging to take place or healing to take place. Blacks in Brazil earn 50 to 70% less than whites. And hold, three, four, three, hold only 3.5% of management positions in Brazil's largest 500 companies. 
A 2004 study in Brazil by the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro found that the income gap, this is Brazil, between whites and blacks in Brazil was wider than apartheid era South of Africa. Global issue? Germany. There's a large Turkish population in Germany, about 2.5 million of them out of 7.5 million foreigners. And there's been recent attacks by young Germans who are resentful xenophobia or resentful of these foreigners that are coming in. The number of far-right crimes between 2005-2006 rose about three, uh, between 15,000 to 18,000 offenses. There's almost a 10% increase in hate crimes in Germany committed by young German folks against Turkish immigrants. I'm going to pick on everybody. Chinese folks. China. Dutch anthropologist Frank Decoder, I think is his name, wrote a book, The Discourse of Race in Modern China, and he shattered the conventional notions about China being relatively free of racism. Listen to the reports of hundreds of young students from Africa that have been subjected to racism in China. And only 90 years ago, the reformist luminary, I'm sorry if I butcher his name, please forgive me, Kang Yuei advocated improver of the race medals for whites and yellows volunteering to marry blacks in order to purify mankind. Such attitudes developed before the first Chinese Western encounter. In other words, Europe didn't introduce anti-black sentiment in China. Japan, a black Harvard-educated anthropologist, John Russell, is publishing research showing that Japanese prejudice against Africans and American blacks is similar to what these groups experienced in the West. Indians, Indian folks, my Indian brothers and sisters, yes, Vilas. <laughs> so you're very familiar with advertisement in the newspapers for fair-skinned spouses. And you're also familiar, perhaps, this is a conversation I had with somebody, uh, an Indian mother routinely describes someone as very beautiful even though she is a little dark. And even now, Indian women are using products called Fair and Lovely to bleach their skins. And apparently now there are products available for men to bleach their skins in India. Race matters. In 2008? In 2008. All over the world. Panel, come on up. Come on up. Will you guys give, us, give you guys a warm a round of applause? Thank you. Okay. Go ahead and grab mics, okay, and, and chairs, and uh, we'll set you guys up here. One of the things we wanted to do for the panel today, you guys, was I wanted to actually invite folks who are non-experts. Because... Uh, what happens with a lot of these things is we get folks who are quote-unquote experts, knowledgeable. I'm not saying they're not experts, but I'm saying those folks that are very knowledgeable, familiar with the issues, so on and so forth. And a lot of times, when we as a congregation, I include myself and, as you, when we sit out there and listen to certain things and discussions about race, they speak above our heads. You know what I mean? They're, they're talking about concepts and things. We're like, what are you talking about? We can't really relate. So I actually invited a group of everyday folks, just like you and me, to share a little bit from their experiences, okay? To share a little bit from their experiences. Panel, did you guys hear of this Chinese proverb on how, like, human races were, were created? There was this divine potter. Have you, have you guys heard of this? There was a divine potter. 
who made, you know, essentially human, to be human figures and put them in, in the furnace. And uh, the first try came out real burnt and dark, and so he threw it as far as he could, and it landed in Africa. And then uh, he tried again, and he took it out a little too early, and it was too light, too fair skin, so he threw it a little more gently, and, and it landed in Europe. And third time, he's like, now I know what I'm doing. And it came out just perfect golden yellow. Amen. And hence was birth. And hence was birth. <laughs> and hence was birth. It, it, it's, it's actually kind of, it, it's a little bit, I guess, kind of humorous. But the reason why I say that is because there's a sense in which I think each culture is trying to develop a story within their cultures that tries to sort of say, where well, our culture, our ethnicity, or even our skin color is the best. And when it's done kind of in a humorous, folktale-ish kind of way, it's funny, but history has shown us that actually it's not just taken in that context, but it's taken in a very serious way. Uh, tell us your names real quick, just your names, okay? And uh, just a little bit about your background, for example, ethnicity, culture, and whether you were born in this country or not. Okay, so we have a little bit of background. Let's go with, uh, well, you always go first, so let's go with Phil. Okay, go ahead. Uh, my name is Phil Park. I'm originally from the Detroit area. I grew up, um, well, I was born in the U.S., but my parents immigrated from Korea a couple years before I was born, so I grew up in a pretty, fairly diverse uh, area. There's all the white people that I knew were Jewish, so I kind of equated Jew- white Big white is Jewish. Uh, there are a lot of Middle Easterns, and then there are also a lot of Koreans as well. So um, I was surrounded, at least in school and diverse area, but uh, at church it was um, immersed not only in teaching God, but also about teaching Korean culture, Korean history. And uh, so those were kind of intertwined and kind of, it was good, but also in a certain way it got kind of corrupting at times too because the Confucian ideals along with the gospel try to go hand in hand with one another unintentionally um, but it definitely um, shaped a lot of uh, my beliefs um, in going forward and so I was trying to weed some of that out but that's that in a nutshell. Okay, thank you, Phil. Um, my name is Lauren Robinson. Um, I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Um, it's a suburb of Cleveland and um, it's pretty integrated um, and I grew up in a black neighborhood, um, went to a black church, and I, I would say I had a pretty strong um, black identity um, growing up. Um, and I, I remember in fourth grade, um, I was going to the bus stop, and um, some, there, was the, there was like the bully, and she came up to me, and she was like, you talk white, you act white. And I was like, what? I'm black, I know that I'm black. And I just think, Growing up, my parents, my church, my friends, we all, I think, had a strong awareness um, of being black. Okay, thank you. My name is Arva Hunsucker, and I am South Asian Indian. Uh, I was actually born and raised in the Middle East and came to the United States when I was 18 for school. So um, just in terms of uh, ethnic awareness, because I grew up as an expatriate my whole life, um, I was always surrounded by people of many different cultures and ethnicities, and um, that's kind of a, the normal way that I grew up. Uh, and this is in school, though, because at home, we definitely, for the most part, my parents associated only with other South Asians, um, you know, 
Uh, I grew up Muslim, so when we went to the mosque, it was people exactly like me. Um, you didn't see any variation, really, at all. Um, and uh, even though I grew up surrounded by friends that, had, that were of different ethnicities, by and large, um, when I went to the mosque and culturally speaking with my parents, we were, you know, Indian, South Asian, and Muslim was our identity. Hmm. My name is Deborah Sines, and I'm from uh, Laredo, Texas, uh, which is a small city along the U.S.-Mexican border. And um, I am Hispanic. Both of my parents are of Mexican descent. And uh, I guess I kind of have, you know, a unique background in the way that... Um, most of my ancestors all, you know, lived in Texas even before Texas was part of the United States. So um, I always get the question when I tell people that I'm of Mexican descent, I always get the question, oh, so were you born in Mexico? No. So were your parents born in Mexico? No. Your grandparents born in Mexico? No. I mean, you know, so... Um, it's always kind of funny to see their reaction, you know, when I tell people that, you know, my family has always, re has really always been there, you know, other than one of my grandparents who was born and raised in Mexico. Other than that, you know, we, we didn't cross the border. The border really crossed us. <laughs> and, uh, that's a very unique way of looking true. at it. That's true. And, and I know that's very different because there's a lot of people, especially living in Chicago, who are immigrants from Mexico. And I know that, and that's always been kind of a, a complicated issue for me to deal with. You know, I know that my experience is very different than a Mexican immigrant who may live in the city. Um, even Mexican immigrants who live in Texas are different from the Texans of Mexican descent who have been there for many, many generations. So, um, so I'm very aware of my unique background and you know my sort of texas mexican culture is very different from mexican you know interior of mexico the culture there um but you know the city that i come from is like 98 percent mexican-american hmm. very i've had very little interaction with anybody of any other races or ethnicities my high school there was like a handful of minorities. I don't know. We didn't consider ourselves minorities because we were in the majority. So all of my teachers were always Hispanic. The administrations at my school, you know, our city council is Hispanic. Our doctors, our lawyers, everyone's Hispanic. So I never really had an awareness of race until I moved to Chicago for school. And then all of a sudden, people were really confused by me. Like everybody sort of, no one thought I looked Hispanic. People assumed I was white or they assumed I was half Asian or, you know, I got, I got so many different things. Um, uh, but everyone always kind of would assume that, well, you can't be Mexican. You know, are you maybe Puerto Rican or South American? Like, mm. people were just confused by me. Yeah. So, Thank you, Deborah. Carl. Uh, my name's Carl, and if you can't tell by my accent, I'm white. <laughs> uh, I've been white all my life. And, uh, for real. Um, and I grew up in Milwaukee. That's a specific kind of white. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, okay. So, but my my experience was almost exclusively uh, through my formative years in an all-white community, all-white high school. Uh, churches I went to were all white. The neighborhoods I lived in were all white. And it wasn't until I came to college 
and you know, moved in various parts of Milwaukee outside of my home in the suburbs and being part of Chicago and I really seemed to understand that you know, I am different and what, what I experienced while it was normal for me and my whiteness and my white community was very different from those around me. Thank you. Um, we're just going to jump right in, okay? There's a number of ways that people have defined race and then as a result racism, okay? So I want to just ask whoever wants to go and depending on time we're just going to go with the flow, but how, how, how would you guys define racism? What, what, is, what is racism to you? What's it look like? Um, I guess it's discrimination um, based on color of your skin, ethnicity, um, physical, physical features, I guess. Okay. Okay. Anybody else want to kind of add to that or different definition of what you've thought about race and racism? Yeah, I think I think for me, it's uh, it's definitely prejudice. I mean, just piggybacking on what Lauren said, um, you know, based on, I guess, not just the color of your skin, though, but also culturally. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, at least in India, I mean, we're kind of the same color, but we make we we make judgments based on variations in color, and you know, kind of there's a scale, um, and also. Uh, Ethnically, depending on where we quote unquote have originated from. Yeah. So, yeah. I would say it's also uh, in our society social structures okay. that passively or actively discriminate against people based on their color ethnicity. Okay. okay. I think that what, what Carl kind of said, it's not just simply just actions. I think overt actions are what gets described the most and gets what's most, um, I guess, picked apart, but it's also mindsets and frameworks that we have within our in our minds that, uh, that can also um, portray, maybe not overtly, but definitely in ways that are, that are hurtful towards others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this is you know, helpful because I think when we talk about racism, there are folks who say racism is a social construct based primarily on your skin color. But Arva, your experience is a little bit different because I mean, tell us a little about your experience in terms of growing up in um, the Arab Emirates as an Indian person and what racism looked like and how that took shape and form? I mean, for me, it's, um, it's kind of interesting because I grew up in the United Arab Emirates and it's 85% expatriate, which is huge. There's really only 15% of the population is indigenous. Um, and of that 85%, really about 60 to 70% are South Asian. So Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani for the most part. And there was definitely a sense of, because most of the Indians coming in were construction workers, all Indians as a whole are looked down on, um, even though they have businesses and they have the money, it, it's, not a, you know, it's not a socioeconomic thing, it's just, you're different from us, you're coming to our country, and you know, we don't like that you're here and you're working here, and so we're going to treat you differently. And I remember, you know, I mean, you are, you just, you get treated differently if you walk into a restaurant and if there is an Arab behind you, I mean, they'll get preference over you even though you went in before them and just staff treat you differently. And it, I guess it was ironic because the staff there, a lot of them are South Asian. So they, it was kind of like people of your ethnicity treating you differently, but that's because of the way the structure was set up of what was mandated for them in terms of 
what they were told by their managers, how they were supposed to behave with customers, and then there was like a hierarchy of how they behave with us. Yeah. So it it was weird, I guess, because we're the majority there, but we were discriminated against, yeah. even though we were the majority, because we have, I guess, no power. We're not citizens. We have no rights. You know, we're there to work, and yeah, we yeah. can't we can't fight the establishment. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, you guys. Why do you think it's been so hard and difficult for people to talk about race in this country? Just maybe share a little bit from your personal experience as well, tied to that. But why is it such a difficult, uncomfortable subject and topic to talk about? I think it's because nobody wants to be perceived as being racist. And nobody wants to say anything that's going to be offensive. And so, at Mm. least in my experience, people would rather... um, make it seem like they're colorblind and they don't see color because a lot of people think that if they acknowledge that they do see color, that's racist, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and nobody wants to be perceived that way. Okay. Um, yeah. okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think there's enough places where we can have good, safe dialogue that we're not so... I guess the problem is like a lot of times we're quick to label if something's offensive without realizing what the intent is. Is the intent to really learn and to grow and understand your culture or is the intent to be malicious? And I think if we start separating that a little bit better, mm-hmm. especially within the confines of a church where the gospel should unite us all, uh, the difficulty, I know some people, especially white folks, they approach me like they're walking on eggshells when they want to learn something about my culture mm-hmm. and it's something I would be readily and willing and love to do to be a part of that. But um, I think so much in society, uh, it's very hypocritical because like, we, we want to get along, but yet we thwart dialogue so easily by quickly labeling something as offensive and, and because it's malicious rather than, well, it could be offensive, but let's take a few steps back. Hmm. It's to learn. It's to grow. Mm-hmm. It's to understand about the culture. Okay. Anybody else on the panel? Yeah, I know for, for white people, we like to be problem solvers, and we like quick answers. And race and racism is a subject that doesn't have any kind of quick answers. Hmm. It has a long history. And I remember talking to a coworker of mine at work that there's a study done that the average net worth of a college-educated white person is around forty-some thousand dollars, and that of a college-educated minority person of a specific group um, was only seven hundred dollars. You know, both college-educated, talking net worth, and he looked at me and said, "Whoa, there'd have to be a major overhaul of our societal structures in order to fix that." And even just in one comment, realizing what it would take to address something like that, mm-hmm. I think is a little bit intimidating. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lauren or Ava, you guys? Um, I think some people don't see race as affecting them. Hmm. Um, some people don't feel like they're, that race, that they have a racial identity or so they don't really feel like they need to engage in that conversation. Okay. Okay. I mean, I think as an immigrant, um, you don't want to talk about race because you just want to fit in. Hmm. I mean, you... Why do you want to kind of rock the boat? And this is also just from an Asian perspective. I'm, I'm a non-confrontational person. Why do I want to bring up something that I know is uncomfortable for other people? I'm very attuned to you know, their comfort and discomfort when they're talking to me. Um, so I would say, I mean, just we don't want to talk about race because it's uncomfortable, but also because it stops me as an immigrant from fitting in Mm -hmm. and as an immigrant all i want to do is fit in Mm -hmm. so people aren't constantly asking me questions about you know that 
make me feel or make, kind of make me more conscious of the fact that I'm different from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Carl, you've been alluding to some of this. I think uh, where I'm at, a lot of us maybe in this church are at, is that we wrestle with that whole thing of, you know, I don't have any racist feelings. I don't have, I have lots of friends of color. I have lots of friends of different ethnicity and culture. You know, so I don't have this strong dislike. And so I think when you, when you talk about like systems and institutions and societal structures, it's kind of hard for some of us to kind of latch onto that, you know, and gain some traction. So can you talk about that a little bit? And all of you guys actually, like, how do we, how do we get the conversation for a lot of us who are saying, I don't have those feelings. My grandfather, maybe, my grandmother, my dad, or my grandmother. But I, like, how do, we, how do we even broach that subject in that conversation? Carl, you go first, and then I'd like to hear from you guys. Yeah, I think it, you touched on one thing, is that a lot of times for us, we might not have the feelings that kind of goes, you know, way back a little bit in, our, in family generations. But the societal structures that we have set up in place were set up by those people who had those feelings. So there's kind of this history or lingering effect of, you know, overt or emotional infested racism that exists in our society. And I think some of the, some of it, whether or not you have a feeling towards it, especially, you know, as, as white people, we benefit, whether we like it or not, from being the top of the chain or whatever in a racialized society. There was a, a study done, or a poll, I think, in Newsweek or Time or something like that, right around the time the, the elections, the primary started, saying, you know, would you vote for an African-American? Would you vote for a woman? Would you vote for, you know, something like that? And the mere fact that I don't ever have to ask that question, I don't even have to look at what the answer is, because historically white men have been voted into power. They have been the heads of companies. They, they've been, you know, allowed to travel without any problems. So you know, whether or not I have any feelings towards somebody, I benefit from a, a system that oppresses others who aren't like me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anybody else want to address that? Lauren? Um, I guess I just, I don't think that's true. I think that we're all sinful people. What's not true? That people don't have feelings of, oh. of dislike or prejudice. Mm. I think everyone does, including myself. Mm. Um, and I, I think that um, in Beverly Taylor's book, Why All the Black Kids Came Together, she talks about how we've all breathed in the smog of racism. And I know that I have myself and that I struggle day to day with not thinking maybe malicious thoughts about someone or judging them. Um, so I just don't think that's true. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, I think that... Um, yeah. Are you guys, like, calling our church out? Is that what you're doing right now? Are you saying, yeah? yeah? Is, that, is that what you're doing? Are you saying that for those of us sitting out there going, I don't have those... You're saying, yes, you do? I think that was a huge, like, when I, you know, first moved here and I would have conversations like this with people at Northwestern where I went, everybody wants to say, well, I don't, I'm, I'm not racist. Like, I don't have those feelings. My grandmother does or my grandfather. I heard this, but I don't. And I think that's impossible because I think hmm. we are a product of our family and I think we hmm. grew up with, um, with, with our family saying things to us and hearing things and... And I, I also, you know, felt like that at the beginning, like, well, I'm not, I'm not really racist. But then as I, come to, as I came to grow in this area, I started realizing that, you know, I don't want to call myself racist. I don't want to say I'm racist. Like, I don't think I'm overtly racist, but I think, I think sometimes I do have prejudiced thoughts and biases that are just in my mind. Like, I would never say them. But because I'm thinking about them, that's just as bad as yeah. saying them yeah. or as, as, you know, doing Yeah, something. yeah, Carl? Yeah, I think also uh, if you're in a majority community or majority uh, 
setting, your realization of how you feel would probably be very small because, well, me, I, I don't realize my feelings. You know, I need my wife's help with that. I'm not very emotional. But uh, if, if you're in a situation where everyone around you is like you, you have no uh, focus or no interaction to have feelings about. But I, I listened to all my white coworkers talking about driving through that section of the neighborhood. And immediately I know that they're talking about a section where there's not a whole lot of white people. So as soon as you're in the midst of something where you're not the majority, where no one around you looks at you, where things look a little different than what you're used to, you'll start to see those feelings. How do we, I mean, how do we, I'm going to ask you a question right off I felt, but, but how do we, so you guys, by the way, you guys, we're going to leave a few minutes at the end. We're going to have a mic for anybody that wants to ask a question or a comment. We want, to, we want this to be a dialogue. Um, how do, we, how do we even get to that place where we as a church, individually, small groups, how do we get to that place where we're going, can we have this honest conversation with each other, you know? And Phil, I'm, I want to approach this. And I picked on a lot of different groups, but Koreans are... We're well. the best. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Korean mentality. That's not what I was going to say. Right. <laughs> it's not what I was going to ask, but okay. We are the best. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, but how do you remember the Chinese proverbs, okay? Gotcha. Anyway, um, how do you, uh, I, want to share, I want you to share from personally, um, how have you overcome really the both blatant as well as latent racism that's, that's there in the Korean American community? How, for you personally, because as these guys have talked about, you know, because it's been a challenge for me. You know, and I grew up in a Christian home. So, so what's the journey been like for you as an Asian American, Korean American in this? Well, from a personal standpoint, um, I haven't felt too much of that tension necessarily because I know I've talked to my parents about this too. If I were to marry a non-Korean, would that just crush their world? And, and they've, they've affirmed that it's okay to do. So they kind of give me permission, which is, which is rare. But I do know many uh, Korean brothers and sisters, I'm sure, and, and the other Asian groups, that you have to marry within the race or else it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just tainted. And the kids are going to be tainted or something on that sort. But uh, overall, yeah, I think it's more, and, and it's kind of the Korean way, just, at least for myself, is kind of, it's just kind of escaping it and kind of ignoring it, to be brutally honest. Yeah. That I've, I've, I know it's there. I know it's prevalent in the first generation. It's definitely trickled, like as someone had mentioned before, yeah, I mean, it trickles down to generations. As much as we don't want to admit it, um, it does, and it does taint us as well. And so it's, it's been interesting because there is a, a lot of ethnocentrism, not only within uh, in Koreans, but I think other Asian groups, or maybe just Koreans, we really do think we're the best. And now the other Asian ones uh, don't feel it as strongly about their uh, countries, but I don't know if that's the case or not. Uh, but to be brutally honest, yeah, it's more been kind of not really confronting it, kind of moving away from it. And then as I come into an environment like here that opens, that's open and welcoming, and uh, people ask questions, and we can dialogue about it uh, a little bit more than we can in the Korean church setting where it's not really talked about at all. It's mm-hmm. just kind of, we're doing our thing, we're loving God, and um, we're going to keep doing what we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe one last question, then I want to engage the, co- uh, the congregation. And I, Lauren, I want to start with you and then everyone else on the panel. What have you personally been feeling towards this, during this Democratic presidential nomination race as the conversation about race had both been come to the forefront. People have been sort of repressing it. Like, as an African-American, 
as Carl mentioned, seeing millions of people in this country saying, I will never vote for that person because of the skin of their color. Color of their skin. <laughs> Did I mention that I came to the country when I was 10 years old? Did I mention that? Did I mention that? Excuses. Uh, it's <laughs> every Sunday. Well, every time I do something stupid, that's my, you know, like, excuse me card, you know what I mean? Um, how, how, how have you been processing that? And then I want to ask some other folks as well. I guess um, Obama has, I feel like, has tried to talk about race. And when he's tried, they found every little, you know, mess up that he could possibly say. Or they've critiqued it so that he would stop talking about it, I feel like. Um, and so I, I think he realizes that he's not perfect in I think sometimes when he tries to bring up race, people are like, oh, you're trying to say that we're racist and you're not. And, and I feel like they're missing the point of what he's trying to say. Um, I think people like us get it, I think, but um, the media misconstrues a lot of what he's trying to say. And I think it's frustrating. Okay. Anybody else? Have you been responding to Arva? What's been your perspective as an immigrant? I think... I mean, for me, it's kind of exciting because, honestly, like, I read a lot of international media um, as opposed to uh, national, and it's, it is amazing and interesting for me that kind of even what's happening in this country right now, in a lot of countries, this would not be happening where, you know, an oppressed, mi- a former oppressed minority and maybe still oppressed minority has, is possibly going to attain the highest office in this country. Okay, in my country, like in India, for example, you have the untouchable caste. There is no way they're going to become president of India or prime minister of India. And so in some ways, like, it's, it's really exciting for me. I feel a lot of hope. But then at the same time, you know, just seeing kind of latent racism come to the foreground, I mean... Just hearing really weird and bizarre things in the media, you know, for example, when Michelle Obama did the fist pump, the Hezbollah style, fist pumping, jabbing, and to me that was just the craziest thing that anyone could say. I, I couldn't even imagine, like, why wasn't this person fired? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, why was this person allowed to speak, you know? Who, it, 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 like, totally blows my mind, you know? And the fact that this person you know, said this thing and, you know, apologized for it, but it's out there. I mean, he said it, and it, now it's out there. Um, and a lot of people be- probably do believe that that was some kind of Hezbollah-style secret signal thing, and that's crazy, okay? You know, and to me, it's like, that just shows, like, the racism. I mean, it's not just against African-Americans, right? I mean, because of Barack Obama's unique background. I mean, it's against Muslims. It's against um, Middle Easterners. Hezbollah is a Middle East organization, not an African Muslim organization. And it's so it's. I think it's so interesting how it just completely cut through so many different swaths of uh, you know groups that that some people in the United States are racist towards and. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think that it's, it's exciting, yet it's very scary because um, I think people need to ask questions. If they are unsure, 
I think it's better to be informed by the facts as opposed to just kind of go along with whatever is being said and you know base your decision on that. So, so I'm hoping the fact that he's talking about race that people will feel more comfortable asking questions. I mean, if you're unsure, what's the difference between you know a Muslim from Africa and a Muslim from the Middle East and a Muslim from South Asia? There are differences, and you need to understand the differences. Michael's going to stand, and um, what I'm going to do is have, depending on time, one or two questions maybe for the panel. I don't want somebody to go and do a long monologue, but one or two. Aaron? Your name, please. Aaron Johnson. Hi. <laughs> I'm back there usually. Uh, By the way, I just had a flash. So this, 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 so this is what Jerry Springer's show must feel like when you're actually in the audience and the panel. I agree with what you guys are saying, that, you know, you can't get away from racism. It's inherent in our culture. Everybody kind of has their slant on it. But what do we do with it? Is it possible to even get beyond that? I mean, it kind of sounds like it's just nothing we can do. Whew. That's huge. That's a big question. Uh, how many of you guys are feeling really just like depressed and hopeless right now? Well, it's not bad. That's not bad. There's 10 hands, that means there's like 90 people that feel that. So that's still not bad because I was thinking maybe under. Uh, Aaron, we're going to go on this journey for the next three weeks and we're going to try and answer that. You guys don't know the reality of our church. There's going to be no nice, neat answers tied with the bow at the end saying, see, now we're perfect. Absolutely not. We may open actually more questions. Thank you for expressing that. Okay, a couple more. Can I respond to that? Sure, Lauren. Go for it. Go for it. Go. (laughs) I guess I I think that um, we shouldn't think we're going to get beyond race. You know, I don't want people to stop seeing me as black. I don't want people to stop seeing me as a woman. You know, I don't want, you know, I don't want, I don't want that to happen. So I don't think that's our goal. Okay. Deborah, you wanted to say? I was just going to say that I think, I mean, I think it is a really tough issue and it's hard to know, will we ever be able to solve this? Who knows, right? But whatever does happen, I think that it's the responsibility of the church to take a step towards solving this. Because... That deserves a huge amen or a clap or something. Folks, respond to that. But the funny thing yeah. is, is that yeah. especially, you know, when I first, you know, moved up here and I started going to, to churches and to fellowships in which I definitely was a minority, unlike, you know, how I felt at home, I ran into so many people who felt like this isn't a responsibility of the church to deal with. Like, yeah. our main focus is Jesus and God and evangelism and going to heaven, that's our focus, you know, and they might not say it like that, but that's how I felt people perceived uh, the Christian faith. And, you know, a really, really quick story that I told you guys is that when I was um, my freshman year in school, I uh, was in the dorm room of one of my friends who was a leader in a Christian fellowship, and he happened to be white, and there were all these racial issues going on at, my, at Northwestern my freshman year against the Hispanic community. And this Christian leader at Northwestern, you know, opened this email um, that was sent out to the, the listserv of the fellowship, and it said, um, you know, that we should be praying for the Hispanic community when all this, you know, during this time of, you know, difficulty for them. And when this leader read the email, he got upset that somebody had sent this email over the listserv. 
because, and he said this out loud, he said, this isn't something that our fellowship deals with. We don't, we don't deal with these issues. This should, he should have asked permission before he sent this mm. out over the listener. And I couldn't believe my ears. I couldn't believe that he was saying that because, you know, well, first of all, I mean, he knew that I was sitting right there and he knew that I was a part of this community. He knew that I, in a way, was struggling with this. But he said that we should not be, like, we don't deal with these issues. And that just didn't make any sense to me. Mm. And at the time, I didn't really know how to make sense of it. I knew that it didn't make sense, but I didn't really know why. I didn't really have anything to support my feelings. And I've grown a lot since then um, in my understanding of Scripture and what, you know, the Bible says and what, you know, what I think our responsibility should be as Christians. And so I just, I feel very strongly that there, I don't know, I just don't think that there should be a Christian church who says we shouldn't talk about these issues. It's not relevant. Amen. Amen. Good word. Good word. Pastor Peter, we have four questions. Oh, we're only going to have room for one, please. So, Michael, you choose. <laughs> you have the power. I have the power. Yeah, I'll pick based upon the merits of the question. Sandra, what's your question? Can you talk a little bit, maybe one or two of you, about the mistakes that you've made along the journey and how that's impacted you? Brian, what's your question? As a white man, like, dealing with all the guilt and realizing how much oppression that my people have caused people of color, like, I don't know how to deal with, you know, just the weight of the oppression, I guess. Okay, good Next. question. Um, I didn't grow up Christian, and I converted, I guess, in college, and I've always been very open-minded and very diverse in my relationships and attitudes towards people. But when I, when I became Christian, um, my views were completely changed and affirmed towards race. And I wanted to know how did you guys go through that same experience or different mm. Good question. I want to ask the panelists where they would like to see the church grow in the next year as we engage race. Wow. I'm going to let you guys respond to whichever question that was asked that you want to. Go ahead, Phil. Uh, I'll respond to Max's question, where we'd be next year. And I think I'm going to call on the, the Asian brothers and sisters in here. And I think one of the things that we really um, have been kind of trained to do is to put ourselves in situations that we can be excel at and not fail. And I think that really kind of thwarts the ability to grow a community here mm. because we don't want mm. to take risk. We're very risk averse. And so I want to call on the Asian brothers and sisters to take a little bit more risk. Good uh, I know Tony Campolo, a sociologist preacher, he did a, a survey of, of older people at the end of their lives. What would they have done differently? There was three things, and I'll just get hit one at the time. And it's they wish they would have taken more risks in life. Mm-hmm. And I think we really need to put ourselves out there a little mm-hmm. bit more. I mean, we have some great, there's some great communities, but they tend to be separate within this community. And if we can risk more in terms of relationships and creating relationships and even in creating ministries here. I mean, it's not, I mean, I know the churches we grew up in, if you're not a prayer warrior and if you're not uh, well-versed in your Bible, you have no room in serving. Mm-hmm. But I, I can really speak uh, firsthand that I've I, I approached Pastor Peter and we're, we're trying to develop something that will use business skills and other sorts of skills that we've been, we've been blessed with that can really contribute. So don't let your background of, oh, I'm yeah. not a prayer warrior, yeah. I'm not that yeah. spiritual, yeah. to prevent you from taking yeah. a risk and saying, you know what, but this is something that I can offer. So that's my... Good word. Okay. Thank you, Phil. Lauren, how I about you? I was going to answer Sandra's. I'm in a predominantly Asian-American fellowship, um, and we went to a conference, and, I mean, just showing that prejudice is in, in us all. We were deciding on something, and I was like, oh, we'll never decide because Asian-Americans never make decisions or something like that. And someone was really hurt by what I... <laughs> 
and some and someone's really offended by what I said, and I realized like even me, you know. Um, so I apologize to that person, and I, I mean I guess it's just a wake up call. Hmm. Um, I guess I wanted to respond to Dexter's question, but I need to hear it again. Is that okay? <laughs> Okay, we'll come back to you, Devra. Well, actually, I was going to respond to Dexter's also. Okay, so, so I mean, go ahead. the way I go understood ahead. it. Yeah. How go has ahead. your faith affected your views and attitudes towards race? Um, I think, and this is huge for me, when I was home, and this is, you know, all the way till I was 18, we didn't really talk about race. In, I mean, there is no consciousness of race and different ethnicities. You just kind of stay within your own ethnicity. And I think that when I came to Northwestern, um, even though I was, you know, I was interested in different ethnicities, but it wasn't until I actually became a Christian and understood the biblical basis for why I need to understand different ethnicities, mm. why we're all part of one body. Mm. Um, I think that's when my journey really began in terms of... Um, you know, understanding that there's been a lot of hurt, that me personally, I have a lot of prejudices that I was raised with and that I carry them with me. Um, but I need to understand them and I need to own them so that I can move forward. Um, so I think that, I think I've, I personally found a lot of hope in the idea that even though we're different, we're all part of one body and that God loves all of us equally, even though you know, it's like we're as different as chalk and cheese, and you know, we're. Com- I might have nothing in common with you, but we're loved by the same God. And mm-hmm. for me, that was affirming of my decision to become Christian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you. I think my journey has kind of been a roller coaster. You know, because I started out like no, no interactions with any other you know ethnicities, and um, I, my family kind of had a very ethnocentric attitude. You know, where we're Hispanic and we're the best because we focus, you know, we place a lot of emphasis on family and that's how it should be and, you know, just like, I don't know, just certain things. So, um, and then when I became a Christian or when I really started following Christ, then I kind of started feeling like, well, maybe um, maybe we sh- I shouldn't place as much emphasis on race and ethnicity. Like, I'm a child of God and that's all that should matter and then I kind of struggled with like, well, should I even identify with with my cultural identity, maybe that's wrong. Maybe mm. I should just identify as a Christian, and that's mm. it. Like, mm. should, and then I kind of, when I came into college, similar thing. Like, you know, where where is my allegiance? You know, like I just I kind of struggled a lot with that. Um, but then I sort of, I guess I just came to the realization that you know it's okay to see color, and it's okay to um, to you know have a culture, and it's okay to. Uh, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that, like, okay, you know, white people are the majority, and they might, you know, be more in more places of power, and, you know, Hispanics might be in this area, and blacks may be, and it's okay to think about that, and it's okay to figure out what our, uh, what our role is in that, and, and I think for me, I just came to the conclusion that I really need to understand other people better. And I, mm-hmm. I think I need to form relationships with 
people of different ethnicities and sort of live life with them so that I can see what it is that they go through. And, you know, even with other Hispanic people that have a different experience than me, like, I may not know completely what they go through and they might not go know what I go through, but that's why we need to, you know, I, I think that's why it's so important to live life together to be able to understand each other. And it's okay to be a Christian and do that at the same time. Like, I think that was a big light bulb for me when I... Uh, I'm, I'm a multitasker, so I'm going to try to answer three questions at once. Uh, for, for Brian, I think, uh, for, I see this in a lot with uh, white people, is that we have this, this awareness of, oh my gosh, we did this. You know, it's a social construct that our ancestors, you know, however generations back, did. And the people in power now in this racialized system, you know, are, are contributing to this. And I, I, it's easy for me because I'm kind of emotional at times, but I think uh, acknowledge the guilt, but don't let it pull paralyze you. Don't, mm. don't focus on what do I have to do with this guilt. Focus on what can I do to fix the problem. And I think uh, to answer Sandra's question about you know, what mistakes have we made, I think the mistakes that I've made in the past is not doing something uh, for fear of making a mistake. And can I just ask the people in color room, is it alright if white people make mistakes? Yes. Okay, white people, you heard that? You can make mistakes. Um, but in wondering what to do, doing nothing. And being paralyzed is fear of, oh my gosh, you know, we did such crappy things, there's no way I can be part of the solution. And I think for Max's question where our church can grow, I think in a good theology and understanding that God intended cultures, that he delights in cultures, and so a solution to this is not the absence of culture, kind of one monoculture, but many of them together. Thank you. You guys, um, these guys have offered to stay after the service to talk and to connect with you want to encourage you guys to do that. Um, if today's conversation was a little difficult, a little uncomfortable, um, it's not going to get any easier for the next three Sundays. I just need to say that up front. But you guys have always been unbelievably great about hanging in there for difficult conversations. So thank you. And please, not only come back, but bring somebody with you that would engage in this conversation, okay? So I want you guys to be here for the next three Sundays as we go on this journey. Um, For anybody that felt offended, uncomfortable, because of stupid things I've said in advance, sorry, and anybody else up here, but I'm hoping that we could open up honest conversation and dialogue, okay? Uh, I I wanted to end actually by uh, just reading you guys. I actually check out a blog called Kimchi Mamas. Asian ladies, Korean ladies, Kimchi Mamas. Oh my gosh, it's the best. Okay? It's this Korean lady who writes a blog, and I just wanted to read you one of her blogs. is June 6th. Just rant, okay? She says, this post is a rant. Be warned. I just came home with my husband who just had LASIK surgery. Anyway, while we were waiting for the operation, the surgeon came and started chit-chatting with me. You know, his first question was, so where were you born? Or, were you born in America? Or something like that. I replied, I was born in Korea. He replied, that's interesting that you have a Chinese husband. And I replied, no, he was born in Korea too. (laughs) Then he went on to tell me how the Korean ribs from Costco were so good and asked if I ate kimchi. Later on, after the surgery, when he was examining my husband's eye, he was all, 
Does your wife make good kimchi? My husband replied, she doesn't make kimchi. He was all, oh, really? Or something like that. Then he went on about how the Korean ribs from the Costco were so good. <laughs> He's why I share this with you guys to say this. See how we just laughed at someone's perhaps unintended ignorance? We have to be able to do that. Or else we're not going to get past this. Will you give me, your pastor, permission to ask stupid questions and to say stupid things throughout this series? Will you give each other the grace to be honest and to ask hard, sometimes stupid questions? Will you do something a little high school youth groupish for me? Will you join hands with somebody standing next to you? Okay. Go ahead. And uh, for the next few moments, uh, what I want to do next few moments is I want to ask you to pray for me and the other preachers through this series um, and will you pray for our church just take the next few moments just, just quietly in your heart just, just lift up this church body to you we cannot do this without the Holy Spirit of God so just lift up the next month or so as we journey together this very difficult and hard hard series that God will do something amazing in and among us And Lord, I'm going to ask you to uh, lift us up in prayer as we leave, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the community um, and just for people that are open um, and just willing to delve into these um, hard issues. Like Pastor Peter said, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will really come and be with us and speak to us because that's the only way that we will move forward. So I just pray that you will continue to open our hearts Um, even when we leave, and um, really unite us, Lord, through the cross. Lift up Sandra, lift up Pastor Michael um, as they preach in the upcoming weeks. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you guys give these guys a big warm round of applause? Thank you guys for your boldness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great week, you guys, and we'll see you back here next Sunday. Thank you. Have a great week.